What up, what up, what up? Welcome to another edition of Like I Was Saying, where this week we are talking about the Indianapolis 500. The greatest spectacle in racing is what it's called, and it's coming up in just two weeks. If you're a sports fan, trust me, you got to go to this thing. Seriously, even if you don't like racing, there's nothing like the Indy 500. It's like more than 300,000 people in one place. The, the people watching is actually probably the biggest sport of all at the event, but it's a must-see, a great show, and you will become an IndyCar fan after you at least set foot in one Indianapolis 500. But anyway, this week, I have my partner, I have my homie, Matt Barnes, join me. He's one of my best friends. He also happens to be an engineer for Ed Carpenter Racing of the Verizon IndyCar Series. He's big into sport. He's helped win a couple of polls for his team, he also helped to teach me IndyCar. I moved to Indianapolis. I had no clue what the race was, no clue about the Indy 500. He helped break it down, and he's joining me this week. Dude, I've been in Indy for nine years. I came in, I had no clue what the hell the Indy 500 was. Like, I saw it on TV, but I had no concept of what it was. And you sat down and broke it all down for me. Yeah, you know, actually, I sympathize with you because, you know, you and I both aren't from Indy. You yeah. know, I'm from Colorado, you're from North Carolina. I'd never been to Indy 500 until I worked at it. Mm-hmm. I've still never been to Indy 500 when I wasn't working at it, so I've never been there as a fan. Well, I have no concept what the Indy 500 is, other than, like, work. Yeah. Everyone talks about, like, oh, the snake pit, or a turn three, or turn two. Yo, all I know is pit road on race day, and that's it. Yeah. Tell you what, you know, I, I worked in racing for a couple of years before I went to the Indy 500 to work, and uh, people talked about it in a way that I hadn't heard anyone talk about a race or an event before, and they had such a reverence for it and such a respect for it that it didn't, it almost um, didn't seem real, you know. And I I came to it and uh, kind of doubting all that, you know, it just didn't seem like just another race. And uh, when I came here and I saw for the first time. Uh, you know, 400,000 people on race day, like wall, a sea of people and the energy and uh, just standing in pit lane when a car goes by at 240 miles an hour. You know, those are things you don't experience anywhere else. No, that is, that is seriously true. I, um, I don't even know what 500, I guess this is like the seventh. I missed a couple of 500s due to the Pacers playoff. Mm-hmm. Back they used to play the heat. But like certain I was having this conversation with a co-worker the other day. Like, sadly, the race is an afterthought giving all the stuff around it. Mm-hmm. I know it's different for you because you're clearly trying to win. But for the casual spectator, it's like we care about who wins, maybe a crash or a good pass. But the spectacle is really what that race day is about. Yeah, it is. And, you know, even even for us, like, to some extent, you know, once the race starts... Um, it's a little bit out of our control, you know, from us in the pits, you know, it's, that's not entirely true, but you know, there's so many things, uh, you know, I'm not driving the car. And so there's so many things that can happen out on track, uh, crash or, you know, the, you know, a, a mechanical breakdown, something happens completely out of our control and, um, everything up until the race, you know, feels like you have a lot more control over mm-hmm. it. You know, you're, you're out there, you're, you're making changes, you're trying to get better practicing, you know, and that feels like control, and the race feels like no control. So you're saying you need control. 
that why you're a chief engineer? You're like, I just want to be in control of everything. Well, you do, you do, you know, you want to have control of the outcome, right? That's uh, at least, at least I do. You know, I think if you, if you, maybe there's uh, two types of people in the world. There's some people that kind of uh, happy to leave it up to chance, and there's some people that want to. <laughs> Dude, I know you. You love to leave it up to chance. Except for when it's racing. That's true. <laughs> but you want to feel like you, you know, you're in control, even though to some extent uh, we always aren't in control, but. Uh, you know, you want to feel like you have control over as much as you can to help guide the outcome the way you want. The thing I think that got me with the whole first time at the Speedway, kind of first time dealing with IndyCar, to the novice is just guys, oh, they're driving car, they're turning left. Mm-hmm. They're turning right on the opposite Roman Street course, but at the oval, um, they, they go left. But it's so much more, like when you break down like the aerodynamics, give me, give the people listening that same refresher you gave me as far as like the true mathematical aerodynamic involvement in specific IndyCar because it's totally different than what they know with NASCAR. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much uh, detail that goes into getting speed out of the car and uh, the driver's just one part of that equation. But, you know, we're, we're talking about changing. Be honest, be honest. Does the driver get too much of that equation? <laughs> no, the driver, those guys, you know, I, I can't imagine. I actually have like a cold sweat sometimes. Every every year when, when May rolls around, right before the New 500, I have the same nightmare where something's happened to the driver and I have to drive the car. And uh, <laughs> like I wake up in a cold sweat where like I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to like go flat, hold the throttle down through turn one not lift I like I'm out there on the track I'm working up to it and I'm just like all right you just have to do it and I like wake up before I actually have well, to do it why would you be the first choice <laughs> I would never be the first choice I wouldn't even fit in the car <laughs> but that's like that's just it's on my mind because I, I have a lot of respect for what what all those guys do and and uh, you know it's 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 quite a process to get to that point but assuming you got a driver that's gonna keep their foot in it and go around the track step like one. they do step one you know, there's the things that we change on the car. They're they're such small. We're changing things by thousands, a couple thousandths of an inch. We're changing wing angles by, you know, a tenth of a degree. We're changing things that are, are making a real difference by these very very small increments. That's, that's difficult for people to fathom that a tenth of an inch in the back of the car that has nothing to do with the engine or the tires mm-hmm. can affect whether you win or lose a race. Yeah. It's true, and and even you know even Indy Indy magnifies that because uh, if you just look at qualifying, you know you're you're doing four laps, you're you're hopefully flat out the whole time, and you're trying to get the most out of the car. The pole first to second sometimes is a difference of 0.001 miles an hour average over four laps. That's such a small difference. So I think no matter the sport. The pole race is the dumbest thing ever. You know why? Because you don't even race like you do like a pole run. Yeah. And then you completely change the car for racing. So like the car that wins the pole isn't even the setup you're gonna have to race with. Yeah, I mean that that can be true. Um, I think. Watch some. I get some racing guy that's gonna light my ass up. <laughs> like, you don't know what you're talking about, boy. Well, you know wh- whether that's true or not. In the end. You're still, 
and, and especially in the right now, um, you actually get paid the same amount of points for the poll uh, as you do to win a race. Mm-hmm. Um, so, from a championship standpoint, it it, uh, it weighs in, but the Indianapolis 500 poll is held in such high prestige. It's it's like a race in itself. And uh, I mean, you set some amazing numbers. You've obviously part of Ed Carpenter Racing. You've won two poles. You know, when you see your driver Ed going around, what was his average be like? Two twenty nine, two thirty. I think we had a two thirty one, two thirty two. Yo, when you see that, what? You're like, yo, I did that, or you're like, man, I can't believe he did that. <laughs> it's it's definitely you know it's a team it's a team sport, which is something a lot of people don't give me the cliche. Don't give not, me the cliche. It's not a you know it's 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 the truth. You know, it it takes a whole team, and. Uh, it, it's something certainly I'm proud of. I'm proud of the team four. And, uh, you know, I've always said that, you know, the race, it can go a lot of different ways. There's guys that won the race from, you know, cruising across the finish line at 180 miles an hour, like uh, Ross did a couple of years ago, uh, saving fuel. You know, there's guys that won the race just because the way the strategy plays out and there's uh, weather's a factor, rain, it rains at the right time. You know, there's so many things that can happen when the race. But um, the poll always goes to the best driver, the most prepared team, uh, and and the best crew. You know, you have to have that car preparation. You have to have, you know, the car has to be engineered well. The driver has to execute, and and that's really I think a true test of what uh, a team is capable of. And uh, the race, a lot of things have to fall your way, and um, certainly there's a lot of uh, skill involved and. You make your own luck to some extent, but uh, it can go, it can break a lot of different ways. But you cannot win the pole if you don't have a fast car, a good driver, a good team. It seems like with all of these variables you're, you're describing, if you suffer from anxiety, this will be the worst possible job with all of these things that can go wrong. I mean, Murphy's Law has to keep you awake at night and probably dominate your frame of thought while you're at work yeah you know that's that's the thing you have to focus on is you know what you can control and what you can't and you have to control as many variables as you can but you also can't lose sleep over things you can't control because it will eat you up and and may the month of may the new 500 you know you're you're at the track and you're running every day for um six hours a day and then you have you basically have time to kind of have a talk about it, look at some data, sleep, eat, come back, and you're doing it again. Um, and it, it really does, uh, it breaks people down. You know, every 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 Indy 500, somebody has some sort of, um, you know, breakdown. <laughs> For, you know, and it's it's not necessarily always on your team, but like, uh, uh, you know, it's you someone see, in the paddock has some sort do of you breakdown. you see the breaking point? Do you like, you're walking through the paddock <laughs> and you see that one guy in his eyes and mm-hmm. like he ain't with you, he is yeah. somewhere else. And you see, okay, that kid's about to crack. Yeah, it happens. You know, it happens. It's a lot of pressure, and there's you know there's real there's real consequences. You know, and, and everybody, it, it literally is life and death. It's though. literally life and death, and and so, and that that goes for you know a lot of people on the team, the guys that are actually touching the car, putting the car together, tightening the bolts, making the adjustments. Um, you know that that has a consequence, and and same goes for, you know, set, uh, 
just dictating what changes to go on the car, making sure that things are right, double checking everything. It's it's uh, you know it's it's definitely a, a big responsibility, and it's something that if you're not on top of it, it can it can have real consequences. That seems like the most stressful job, next to being you know in the military, um, that one could have. That might be the most stressful job in sport, not just your job but just working in the automotive industry why why would you do that to yourself why did you decide you know i'm going into automotive racing i'm going into automotive engineering and i'm going to deal with the fastest cars on earth yeah you know i think it's funny you say that like uh, the most stressful job and and i've thought about that a lot and you know i, I look at <clears throat> doctors, surgeons, like they, they've got people's lives in their hands every day. And, and to me, that's a more extreme example. Um, but I think the stress you perceive is the same, you know, like it might not be as uh, direct, directly linked or as often uh, literally having someone's life in your hands, having them on operating table. But I think no matter what it is, when you have, when you perceive that level of stress, it's the same level of stress, you know, regardless. But uh, for me, you know, when I wanted to get into it, I didn't come at it from like uh, a fan perspective. You know, like I kind of mentioned, I didn't grow up around it. You know, I didn't grow up going in the 500. It was just, um, for me, it was a, a job that seemed interesting and I wanted to uh, I wanted to travel. And it was a, a way to do that. I wanted to kind of have this kind of more exciting job, some type of You lifestyle. wanted to say you worked in a race team. You, you knew chicks would do. <laughs> I think I, you know, I always had this, uh, you know, I grew up, Colorado and I hadn't really ever left the state you know through even really the high school before I went to college and <clears throat> you just you know you see uh, whether it's like James Bond right like he's traveling around the world and and okay he's a spy but you're still you know like here's this guy that's out you there that yeah man lifestyle, yeah, drinking yeah whiskey, it kind of smoking cigars pulling hot chicks and other times <laughs> I get it I get it I yeah. wanted it too um You've got an interesting month of May ahead of you because you're teaming up. I, I, I don't know if you're working on Danica's car specifically, but you're teaming up with somebody you worked with for a long time, Danica Patrick, one of the iconic names in racing, whether it's IndyCar or NASCAR. You worked with her uh, many years ago on a different team. Yep. What is it like working with her again? Is it similar? Do you pick up where you left off, or is it different? Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, it's very similar. Like uh, you know, Danica and I worked together at Andretti, for a couple of years, and uh, we had a really good relationship there, and um, uh, and had a lot of success actually. You know, she uh, finished fifth in the championship uh, one of the years we worked with her, and uh, you know, always always respected her, and and you know, we had a lot of fun too, which is important. Did she steal your bike one night? <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah you remember that? Yeah. yeah, stole stole a tire off my bike. Yeah, we had a team <laughs> dinner and. Uh, I was downtown where I live and rode my bicycle there. And <laughs> yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. I'll have to remind her about that. <laughs> well, yeah, when she came, you know, we always kept in touch and we're good friends. And I was glad that we were able to kind of bring her to the team for this this last race of hers. And uh, you know, I think she's going to do a good job. And uh, it's been it's been great. Just uh, you know, we tested last week, had a really good test, and like you said, it was, it was picking up where we left off. And um, you know, she's was really comfortable and excited and you know I think she's gonna uh, do really well this month.
Yeah. Uh, so you're big in racing, which we clearly know. Um, but dude, you're also a snowboarder. A skier. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. You know. Um. It's uh. There's a distinction there to be. Yes, I've never been on snowboard <laughs> ski before. I know this is like the epitome of like the Colorado, Coloradan, Coloradan. How do y'all call yourselves? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I, uh, Coloradoans. Maybe? Coloradoans, yeah, yeah. It's what y'all do out there. Y'all Ed really Carpenter would call us hippies, basically. Yeah, uh, yeah well, it's legal. General, generalization. <laughs> it is legal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you, you've, we've had some interesting stories when you're like, hey, dude, man, home just got a fresh powder over that. I'm flying out. You get the early flight. And you go out and ski. And I've seen, was a Whistler when you were in Vancouver? Yeah. And you went, like, what'd you, you took, like, a big, like, like, like a, a cat, mountain, yeah. yeah, like a cat truck to a taco, like, ski where no one else had skied, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What the hell is wrong with you, man? <laughs> like, you, your job isn't dangerous enough being around all that stuff. Oh. You want to go, like, backcountry skiing in Canada. Yeah, you know, it doesn't feel dangerous. It feels like, uh, to me, that feels like kind of, being connected with just the outdoors and you know the mountains and that like feels like home to me and it feels like a calm safe space it doesn't feel like kind of you know this kind of chaos that goes on the track so I guess you know I don't I don't I know I'm not out there like doing backflips off of a cliff or anything like that you know I'm just trying to you save that for when you're on the motorcycle uh, <laughs> so backstory uh, as we do this I'm bringing this up did you show me the the GoPro video. You yeah. were back home in Colorado. Yeah. Going to a wedding. Yeah. And, and normal people, they just rent a car. Yeah. But you wanted, you and your homeboy yeah. wanted to take like dirt bikes and do like off-road biking to the wedding, right? Yeah, we did like a backcountry trip uh, kind of all the way, like from Denver to Aspen through all back roads with uh, some like dual sport motorcycles. I'll let you finish the story. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, I wasn't going to bring this up, but yeah, basically it was a great trip. I had a lot of fun, uh, but right towards the end of, uh, right before we got to where the wedding was supposed to be, uh, I got on a trail that was uh, probably a little more, a little bit over my head, maybe uh, not quite uh, rated for the type of bike I was on, and uh, uh, ended up kind of dropping the bike off a ravine, yeah, into a river, and went down a cliff like a pretty pretty steep fall was it like uh, an into the wild moment where you, you were sitting there and you're like i have to live i must save myself for the world it, i didn't have that kind of time afterwards luckily because there was uh you know i was with a friend that was around and some of the people were there to, to help me out but so you didn't uh, have to drink your own urine or like cut your arm off the I, I didn't but the second i started going over the edge i did i did think that was that was basically it it was kind of like one of those moments you're like well I'm dead. <laughs> and then the second you realize you're not dead, you're like, thank God. And then you're like, all right, am I broken? And then you're like, wow. I so like, what is your assessment of your body? You're like, okay, legs, arm, head. Like, yeah, it was, it, it was, yeah, it was, it was very much that, um, you know, I kind of, I was like falling down a mountain and uh, I'm like trying to, I remember trying to spread out to try and stop myself from falling as fast. And I remember looking up and seeing the bike kind of falling after me and like, hope it doesn't fall on me. And then the bike did fall on me. And then um, it went all the way down to the river. And then luckily I kind of stopped about halfway down and you just take a second and you're like, all right, well, I'm still, I'm still in one piece. And uh, there's- Did you leave the bike there? Yeah, it was uh, actually, yeah, it was, it was literally kind of like a 100, 120 feet down and in, into a, a river. Um, 
and so I really couldn't couldn't get to it. Um, so if someone's listening to this in Colorado, <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, two, two, devil the devil's punch bowl it was called. Uh, so just right yeah. for the picking. See, it seemed so innocent at the time. The devil's punch bowl, what could go wrong? It seems could be fine. You know, uh, just a, a side note. You know, when we were going to go on this trail, my buddy, he was like trying to do something more aggressive, and I was like, oh, I don't think we should do that. And he's like, Well, let's ask these guys here. You know, they're like the gas station kind of in the trailhead, and uh, there's this one guy, and he was like uh, about 65, 70 years old. And we're like, Hey, you know this uh, devil's punch bowl trail? He's like, Oh yeah. I do. I did it one time. I'll never do it again. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. And then uh, we asked this other guy, and he was like, you know, our age. He's like, oh, yeah, no, yeah, it's cool. We're fine. Those are like the two like the two inputs we had on this. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And, you know, it wasn't fine. So uh, I probably uh, wouldn't do it again. But, you know, in the end, made it out okay. Um, the bike didn't survive, but uh, made it to the wedding. Had a great story to tell. <laughs> Yo, you actually, we won't go into all of it. Craziest story from the road in IndyCar Oof. that you can't tell. Once again, I've known you so damn long. Like, I could tell it, but, like, I want you to keep your job. So I'm not going to say nothing. Uh, but I'll let you tell the story. Uh, you know... It's like story time with Matt. Uh, this is. It feels like. Uh, feels like I'm. I'm revealing too much. But uh, you know, one. One thing. Uh, actually, my friends like to remind me of all the time. Is uh, we went to Toronto a couple years ago, and uh, you know, I don't. I don't usually, especially on that before race. I don't ever. I don't ever go out. I don't really. You know, kind of just take it easy. Get prepared for the next day. Um, but uh, I had about like seven friends that came to the race in Toronto, and. Uh, was for one of our friends Campbell's bachelor party and uh, so they were there and they had all this stuff set up and I got down the track on Saturday after qualifying uh, feeling pretty good about everything left and went and met them up and they were at some pool party and uh, Tiesta was playing and like it was just like this crazy it was like the quintessential like when people think racing that's the lifestyle <laughs> yeah you're partying with Tiesta which you know e- this e- is a uh, <laughs> exactly which this is like, you know, exception, you know, for the most part, for the most part, yeah, it's not that glamorous, but this was like a, a, you know, that type of setting. So we start there and then we just kind of like go out and I end up going out later than I normally would. And uh, I was, I was feeling like kind of guilty about it already by the time I went to bed. And so the next day, the race at Toronto, all my friends are there and uh, we end up Ended up winning the race, finishing first and second, actually, which in our team history has never happened, finishing first and second. And so, uh, you know, they they always like to remind me, like, well, you know, crack the code for you, man. Like, you wanna you wanna finish first and second, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to go out go out so and party the night before. Are, so. are we thinking, you know, turn up? Night before the <laughs> I don't think I I don't think I can do that again. Yeah. <laughs> That's good you're getting got, old. I'm getting old. I got a process. I, I, I'm gonna let that be. I'm gonna let that stand as the exception and uh, stick to my normal, my normal process for the rest you of walk it. Walk off. All right. So speaking of walking off, I'm gonna let you out. I'm, I'm trying this new thing. You're the first mm. person. Um, yeah. Everyone has a bio, like whether it's <laughs> your Twitter, your Instagram, or your Tinder, whatever mm. it is. Mm. Everyone has a bio 
uh, and I know your bio specifically reads what? IndyCar engineer, mm. defender of the scientific method, mm-hmm. and destroyer of bacon. Mm. Yeah, that's true. In a in a world where you weren't like putting yourself out there, what would your bio read? Like if you if you change your bio today, right now, what would it read? Yeah, I'd have to. I need to let people know uh, that Matt Barnes does not have bars. I've got no bars. <laughs> I, I, I am a big fan of rap, but I have no bars, and, and that would alleviate me of the pressure and the fear that I've experienced with you. <laughs> right. So this was my 30th birthday. We were going out. We were in the car, and we were just freestyling. It was me, Prada Edler, who's already been on the podcast, my other friend Rob from Chicago, and we each had a line, and we got to you, and we were like, Matt, take it. Matt, go. Matt. He's like, I, I got nothing. <laughs> I was like crickets and and uh, I felt so embarrassed and ashamed in that moment and I, I never want to feel that again so if I could just put that out there on my bio so people won't won't feel like they can invite me to freestyle then you know I'll never have to experience that again and as always thanks for listening let me know what you think of the show hit me up Jason Spells on Twitter and IG never did it for the fame never did it for the game when I picked up the mic it made my whole world change